0: Well, we are going to do a a different sort of series this Advent. We're going to look at a series of sermons we're going to call Christmas in Genesis. Uh, So if you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3. You can also find that scripture reading printed for you in your bulletin. But I'm going to start uh, with a story that many of you have probably heard this before, so if you have, my apologies But this is my wilderness survival story. Uh, My wilderness survival story from the time when we lived in Boone. We lived in Boone, North Carolina, uh, for about eight years where I did campus ministry there. Uh, And I had a guy in my group uh, who had spent, one of my students, he had spent 75 days in the Yukon in some kind of survival school, if you give you an idea of this guy. He's now a fly fishing guide in Montana, and he had been bugging me to hike up Grandfather Mountain with him at night and to spend the night in a shelter there. And I have been putting this off and putting this off. And it was February, and Susan and the kids, I don't remember where they were, but they were out of town for some reason. I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I might as well go ahead and do this. Now, you need to know that the High Grandfather Mountain, you need a permit. And so we were doing this at night. It might have been after RUF on a Wednesday night. I can't remember for sure. But I had to go to the mass store in downtown Boone and get a permit. And when I went in to apply for the permit, their reaction was, you're going tonight. And you need to understand that in, in Boone, they have these things called winter storm warnings. And they're not like winter storm warnings in Spartanburg. Okay, when, when there's a winter storm warning in Boone, there's actually going to be a storm. Chris Justice is not just trying to get Facebook hits. All right. There is a storm coming, high wind, high snow, single-digit temperatures, below zero windchill. All of that stuff is coming. And whatever it was going to be in Boone that night, multiply that by about 10 for Grandfather Mountain because the elevation's 2,000 feet higher. There's a there's a wind speed gauge on the top of Grandfather Mountain that registers speeds up to 200 miles an hour. And while we were living in Boone, the wind speed gauge blew off of the the, the store there. Okay, so that's... That's how windy it gets up there. So I borrow a zero-degree sleeping bag from somebody. I met the guys, and we start hiking up. And I should mention uh, that our group consisted of uh, the outdoorsman that I already mentioned, another guy who served in the Army and spent time in Iraq, and me. So, you know, we, a, a preacher, an outdoorsman, and a, and a soldier walk into a bar. Uh, <laughs> Decide to go hike a mountain in a winter storm. Uh, so as we're, as we're walking up the mountain, I was really thinking, I've got the best job ever. I am getting paid to hang out with college students and to hike mountains in the winter. Like what, what better kind of job could, could you enjoy? On the way down, I thought this is the worst job in the world. and I've got to find another job. Uh, but because here's, here's why. On the way up, there was a light breeze. There was a little bit of snow. It was just kind of a winter wonderland. But we had a crest somewhere along the way where that wind kicked in and that snow kicked in and we couldn't see the trail anymore. And there were some icy boulders involved that we had to scramble over at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, whatever time we were doing this. And then we get to the three-sided shelter on the top of Grandfather Mountain and there are two or three inches of snow in the shelter. All right, not on the ground, in the shelter. and so. We go into this shelter, and we start to unpack. And I had actually gotten sweaty from the hike. And I was going to change clothes and put on some other clothes to get in my bag. And one of the guys with me said, don't do that. You'll lose too much heat changing clothes. Just keep the ones on you have and get in the sleeping bag, and and you'll dry out eventually. That was mistake number one. Mistake number two, we decided to make some hot chocolate. And we used some of the water that I had packed in in my Nalgene bottle. And so we, we made this hot chocolate. And, and the guys, after I closed it, said, put it in your sleeping bag by your feet, and it'll be warm in the morning. It won't, be, it won't freeze, and we'll be able to use it to make hot chocolate again in the morning. That was mistake number two. Mistake number three was that I actually drank the hot chocolate, and, and I'll explain that in a minute. It, here's what happened. I got into that sleeping bag and I, I could not get warm. Like, I don't know what it feels like to freeze to death, but I think it feels something like that. I, I thought at least I'm, I'm losing some toes tonight because I would just sit there and bounce my legs up and down in the sleeping bag on that wooden platform trying to get warm, but I could not get warm, in part because that Nalgene bottle that I would placed in the bag with me leaked. And so not only was I cold, my feet were wet. Uh, There was frost inside my sleeping bag the next morning when I got up. The other problem was, and this may fall into the too much information category, but most of you guys know this about me anyway. I didn't know at that time that I actually have this bladder disease. And one of the things that you absolutely shouldn't do is drink hot chocolate. I drank hot chocolate, got in the sleeping bag, and I got to go. The other thing that's happening, one of the guys told me, is when you get in an extreme cold situation, your body has, produces more urine and you have to go anyway. So I've got like this disease and this extreme cold. So like every 15 minutes, I'm waddling out of my sleeping bag to the edge of the shelter, you know, doing my thing into the wind. And then back into the, back into the sleep. I know my wife is shaking her head at me. <laughs> go, go go back into the sleeping bag and it wasn't my sleeping bag and i couldn't get it zipped up so i would elbow the guy next to me who was a mummy bag and i'd say chaz zip the bag back up and so he's just kind of furious at me at this moment mr mr yukon um and i'm lying there just i'm not going to make it through the night if i could hike back down i would have and so finally at some point in the night the, the army guy andy he actually had two sleeping bags he had one layered inside of the other And at some point in the night, Andy says, here, take one of my sleeping bags. And I put that bag over the one I was already in, and I finally got warm enough to make it through the night and make it to the next morning. Uh, No frostbite. Everything was okay. But, But that was the one ray of light on a very dark night, that sleeping bag that he gave to me. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the original dark and stormy night, the, the very first dark and stormy night in all of human history, and, and usually when we look at this dark and stormy night, we emphasize all the bad stuff about it, and, and we do need to think about those things. We talk about the devil, and temptation, and sin, and the fall, and the curse, and all of that, but instead of focusing on those this morning, I want to focus on three rays of light in Genesis chapter 3. Three places where God hands us a warm sleeping bag, as it were, and says, you're, you're going to make it through this dark and stormy night. And we need this, I think, because for many of us, life can start to feel like a succession of dark and stormy nights. Maybe not dramatic, but it's just one thing after the other, one discouragement after the other. And what I want us to see this morning is that if there is hope in in this dark and stormy night, then there's hope for you in the dark and stormy night that you're going through right now. So let's look at this. This is God's Word reading from Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let I, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, as we think about this scripture passage this morning, I, I do ask that in the midst of the darkness of this that we would see these rays of light Uh, and rays of hope and that they would encourage us and we pray it in jesus name amen well chapter three of genesis really is one of those chapters in the bible that you need to understand if you're going to understand the rest of the bible if you're going to make sense of the rest of the bible and really if you're going to make sense of of who we are as human beings Uh, adam and eve are created by god they're made for fellowship with him they're placed in the garden of eden to be fruitful to multiply, to work the garden, to subdue the earth, to enjoy God, to enjoy one another. And they're told they can eat of any tree in the garden except for one. And then we're told that the serpent shows up and tempts them to eat of of just this tree. As the scene unfolds, it becomes very obvious that this is not just an ordinary serpent. Uh, The book of Revelation identifies this serpent as Satan himself. And so Satan tempts Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve disobey God, they experience guilt, they experience shame, Uh, they bring the entire world under God's wrath and curse, they're separated from God by their sin, and they're actually kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, Romans chapter 5, looking back at all of this, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin So death spread to all men because all sin. And so you and I live in a fallen and broken world where we have to deal with the effects of Adam and Eve's sin, where we have to deal with the effects of our own sin, or we have to deal with the effects of other people's sin. And, And it all started here in Genesis 3. This is the original dark and stormy night in human history. But like I said, that's not what I want to focus on this morning. We need to think about those things. But that's not what we're going to focus on this morning. Instead, I want us to look at the ways in the midst of all this that even as God is placing a curse on this creation that he has made, he's showing grace and mercy as well. There are multiple ways that he shows us grace and mercy where we see rays of where God gives us a warm sleeping bag in this passage, and I want us to look at three of them. God seeks, God covers, and God wins. God seeks, God covers, and God wins. First of all, God seeks. Look back at verse 8 and 9 of our passage. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? God seeks them out. God seeks them out. Now, yes, he is seeking them to confront them and to pronounce judgment, which he will ultimately do here. But it's also an act of mercy because God at this moment could have simply left them to their own devices. He could have left them to fend for themselves. He could have cursed the creation and not told them anything about what was going on. He could just done it and, and not communicated to Adam and Eve ever again. He could have left them in their sin and their misery without giving them any hope that there would be mercy extended. But for the first time in human history, and thankfully not for the last, God seeks out sinners god seeks out sinners and the good news is that he still does that today he still does that today Uh, jesus in luke 19 tells us that he has actually come to seek and to save the lost he has come to seek out sinners in luke 15 in response to the pharisees criticizing him because he's hanging out with all the bad people jesus tells three parables He tells a story about a shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to go find the one that's lost. He tells a story about a woman who's lost a coin and and searches for that coin until she finds it. And then he tells a story about two prodigal sons. A story about a younger brother who leaves home for wild living and and an older brother who is self-righteous and refuses to go after him. And this story of the prodigal sons points us... an older brother who did what what an older brother should. An older brother in Jesus Christ who comes and searches after lost things. An older brother that we have in Jesus Christ. God still seeks out sinners. Uh, Jean Leroux has a series of sermons on the prodigal son. He's got seven or eight sermons, which are really some of the best sermons I've ever heard. I encourage you to, to listen to them. But in his first sermon on the prodigal son, he compares God to the beachcombers that come out after hurricanes along the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. He said, When there's a hurricane, the storm surge brings all kind of junk up on the beach uh, ice chests, life preservers, oars. He said, There was a wagon wheel one time that, that, that washed up on the beach. And he said he, he would like to go down to the beach not to look for stuff. But just the people watch, the people that would come along, like who goes and, and grabs an old ice chest or who goes and grabs a wagon wheel and puts it in the back of their car? People would come and they would just comb this beach and they would collect all this stuff and they would take it home. What possible use could they have for that stuff? And Jean LaRue makes a point that that's the kind of God that we have. We have a beach combing God who looks through lost sinners and he finds lost sinners and he takes us home he brings us back to himself he combs the, the shores of the earth looking for lost discarded broken sinners like us we have a beach coming god who still seeks out sinners just as he sought out adam and eve y'all that's that's good news That's good news. Uh, If you feel like you're too much of a sinner for God to have any use for, too far gone, you've done the wrong thing too many times, too much water under the bridge, think again. God is a beachcombing God who delights to find lost things and bring them into his home, bring them into his family, and nurse them back to health. If Christmas is hard for you uh, because you come face to face uh, with the reality that that you've got family members or friends and you can't imagine them ever turning around and coming home the way the the younger brother does in the story of the prodigal sons. You can't imagine them returning home. You can't imagine them coming to God. Don't give up. Because your God is a beach-combing God who longs to find lost things and gather them up and bring them home. He loves to say lost, wagon wheel kind of people. That's the first ray of light. In the midst of the darkness of Genesis 3, is that our God, even as he places a curse, is shown to be also a God who seeks after lost things. That's number one. Number two, our second ray of light is that God provides a covering. God provides a covering. Genesis chapter 2, we didn't read Genesis chapter 2, but it ends this way. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. But Then after they eat of the forbidden fruit, in chapter 3 we read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Before sin, not ashamed. After sin, guilty. Ashamed, And so they make coverings in an attempt to cover themselves, to cover their shame. And yet the coverings that they make are not adequate for the job. Y'all, we we still do this. We still try to create coverings for ourselves. I could illustrate it this way. If if I were to ask you to come up front and to tell everybody about yourself, what would you do? You, You would probably emphasize all the good things, all the things that you want people to know about you, the things that you want to be known for. You might be very proud this morning to be a Clemson fan. And you might come up and say, hey, I'm a Clemson fan. I've got a wonderful family and a great job. And I like baseball and I like hiking and I like like fall days and jazz music. You might even come up and list some of your accomplishments. But nobody would come up and say, well, here's the stuff I'm not very good at. These are the things I don't like about myself. I'm, I'm overweight. I ate too much at Thanksgiving. I don't, I don't think people really like me. I'm not doing well in school. I'm terrible at my job. I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to wind up being a failure. I, I did some things that my mom doesn't know about that I know I, I, I shouldn't have done. I drank too much again over the holidays. Why is that? Why is that? Why would we come up here and say all the good things about ourselves, but we wouldn't tell anybody any of the the bad things? We don't want to be ashamed. We don't want people to to see who we really are. We want to control the narrative. We want people to think that we're okay. We want a, a covering for ourselves that makes us acceptable to the people around us. We all know there's something wrong with us. Uh, we all know that, 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 that we're all, to one degree or another, ashamed of certain things, unhappy with certain things about ourselves. And because of that, we're always looking for that something, that something to cover ourselves, to make us acceptable to ourselves, to make us acceptable to others, and hopefully acceptable to God as well. I listened to an interview earlier this week. There a man named Bruce. I was being interviewed by a young woman named Emily and was on the This American Life podcast. And the reason that Emily wanted to interview Bruce is because he had placed an ad, I think it was on Craigslist, and this is what his ad said. I have a small swastika on my left arm that I wish to have covered up. I cannot afford to pay what a tattoo shop charges. It's only a one square inch area please if you do tats on your own call me or text me I just want it covered up or blacked out nothing fancy I did it when I was younger and I want it off. here's Bruce's story Uh, Bruce started doing drugs when he was 15 he dropped out of school when he was 16 he went to prison when he was 17 uh, and he's been in and out of prison ever since he's 61 years old and 30 years of his life have been spent in prison. The last two to three years, he said, is the longest stretch he's ever been, the longest stretch he's ever gone without using heroin since he started. He got the swastika tattoo in prison uh, because that's what all the other white guys were doing and because he thought it looked kind of cool. He didn't really know what it stood for. He just wanted to, to fit in. And at this point, Emily stops him and says, Bruce, you know that tattoo has connotations. And he said, that, that's why I'm taking it off my arm. I read an obituary about a Jewish guy who survived the death camps of the Nazis. Um, and, and, he, and he had written a book about his experience. So I went and read this book. And the way that he survived is that he worked himself in the gas chambers and would haul off the dead bodies of other Jews in order for them to be burned and that's the way he made it through. And he said I read that book and I didn't want that tattoo anymore because I saw that it was an offensive thing. And I'm getting older and I don't want to die and have God see that thing on my arm. I'm getting older and I don't want to die and have God see that thing on my arm. He said, I spent 30 years in prison. I never had kids. My mom and dad never saw me succeed. I just woke up one day, and I was 60, and it had all been drugs. And then he just, he just stops, and he says, this interview's over. Like, it, it is like, the weight of it, this interview is over. And then he says, what did you think before, that I was a dirty racist? What do you think now, that I'm still a dirty racist? You better say that I'm a nice bleeping guy and then that was the end of it can can you just feel like the shame there the guilt that he's weighted down by can you hear that I don't want to die and have God see that thing on my arm I've got to find someone to cover this source of shame and guilt to cover this thing on my arm what if, what if Bruce met the God of Genesis chapter 3? What if Bruce met the God who in verse 21 does this? Then the Lord God said... Excuse knows verse 22. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What if he met the God who killed animals, took their skin, made garments in order to actually clothe Adam and Eve? What if Bruce saw that animals were killed, blood were shed in order to make this covering, in order to cover sin and shame and guilt? What if Bruce saw that the whole Bible is actually about God sending his son to shed his blood to provide the only covering adequate enough to cover our sin and our shame, to cover the swastikas of our arms and our hearts and our minds what if Bruce saw that God was in the business of covering swastikas with the very blood of his son and covering them in in this place placing the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ what if he saw that God was about the business of, of making drug addicts and prisoners into his children what if You and I really believe that Jesus had done enough to cover our sin, to cover the things that we're ashamed of. What would what would I be like if I believed that? If I really believed that. Less angry, less anxious, less driven, less insecure, more honest, more joyful. It's true, you know, that just like my friend Andy provided a covering for me that night in the storm, Genesis 3 shows us that there is a God who delights to provide covering for us as well. God seeks sinners. God provides a covering. And then thirdly, God wins. God wins. Probably the most surprising place we see a ray of light in this passage is in God's curse on the serpent. Look in, look in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's God promising here? He's promising in a nutshell that even though Adam and Eve have taken Satan's side for the moment, God is making sure that mankind, that all of mankind, will not remain aligned with the devil. God will change hearts to ensure that there are a line of men who are opposed to Satan and to his works. And in doing this, God will ensure that there's going to be an ongoing conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Between the children of the devil and the children of God between the wicked and the righteous between the world and the church in which God's side God's people will ultimately win when these see when these seed that this passage is promising comes and crushes the head of the serpent. listen to first John chapter 3 verse 8. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This passage promises there will be an ongoing conflict. Don't be surprised by it, but rejoice that God is rescuing people from Satan's side, bringing them over to his side, making them his own, and take hope that God promised to send a seed, promised to send a conqueror, to defeat the devil and to destroy his works. Sin and death and hell will not have the final word over God's people. The Son of God has appeared to destroy the work of the devil. Uh, In Luke chapter 3, it's one of the two genealogy passages in in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus' genealogy is traced in verse 38 through the son of Enos, through the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And I think what Luke is saying here is that the promised seed has shown up. The promised son has arrived because immediately in chapter 4, what you read about is about Jesus going out into the wilderness to come face to face with Satan. Luke is saying... All the way back to Genesis 3, it's being fulfilled right here at Christmas. The conqueror is here, and he is here to defeat the enemy. Hebrews chapter 2 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The victor, the champion God promised, the one who would crush Satan, arrived at Christmas. And then he died on the cross. It didn't look like much of a victory. Uh, it, It looked like everything had been lost. But in losing, he had actually won. In The Lion, the, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Aslan, the, the Christ figure, has died on the stone table. He's given his life for Edmund, the traitor. And Susan and Lucy are standing the, near the storm, stone table, mourning over what has happened. And then you read this. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise. A great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end, and there was no Aslan. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around. They're shining in the sunrise. Larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. But what does it all mean, asked Susan, when they were somewhat calmer? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Jesus went. Jesus wins. Death doesn't have the last word. Disease does not have the last word. Pain does not have the last word. Failure does not have the last word. Terrorism does not have the last word. Satan does not have the last word. Your sin does not have the last word. Jesus wins. If, If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, take hope in that. His victory is your victory. Jesus wins. I think one of the reasons that, that many of us like Christmas so much is that it feels like a ray of light in the midst of winter. It, it feels like like for a few weeks, the storm is actually going to lift, where we can at least have the sensation of escaping from the difficulties of life in a fallen world. And we should celebrate that. We should celebrate the coming of the conquering king, the coming of the seed that's promised in Genesis 3, who came into the world to crush Satan and that he has done that at the cross. And we should celebrate that at Christmas. We should be glad and sing songs and give gifts and drink good drink and be merry and rejoice. We should do all of those things to the uttermost. We should be partying people. But when the Christmas blues start to sink in, when you remember that loved one who's no longer with you, or when you get to Christmas night and realize you've got to go back into the real world the next morning, remember at that point that what you really need is not a holiday. What you really need is not the Christmas season. What you really need is a Savior who seeks sinners a Savior who covers their shame, and a Savior who wins. He's offered to each of you freely, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are some of us here who are going through uh, hard times and hoping that that christmas is going to be a little bit of an escape for us uh, but maybe for some of us it's not maybe it just makes everything magnified and so father wherever we are i pray that at this time of year we would would take hope in a savior who seeks sinners and who covers their shame and who wins the victory help us to hope in jesus and help us to rejoice because we have such a savior we pray it in his name amen